Philippians 4, uh, verses 4 to 13. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in, in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. All right, so today um, is the last in our series on Philippians, and we're focusing on chapter 4 today. Um, chapter 4 opens with the word, therefore. So... In the Bible, if you hear, read therefore or finally, it's because there's something coming that is meant to be read in the light of what was before. So what has come before? Well, in chapter 1, Nick shared with us, um, to live is Christ, to die is gain. In chapter 2, we looked at your attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus. And last week, Steve had us look at, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And so we need to look at chapter 4 in this context. It begins with, Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. So if we read this verse in the context of the previous three chapters, by believing that nothing compares or measures up to having Christ as our Lord and having the attitude of Christ, we can stand firm in him. As Nick and Steve mentioned previously, it's believed that the church in Philippi was Paul's favourite. And in the very first verse of chapter 4, we can see why. Paul says he loves and longs for them and he calls them his joy and crown. That's far removed from in the letter of Galatians where he calls them, you foolish Galatians. And instead of that, in chapter, one, I'm sorry, chapter 4, verse 1, of all the churches he founded, he calls the Philippian church his crown. And so partly because of this, his letter to the church in Philippi is different from the others Paul wrote. It doesn't spell out Christian beliefs or deal with squabbles. The church at Philippi didn't need that. What they needed was practical advice and encouragement to persevere through persecution and trials. They weren't problem-free or perfect by any means, but they needed to be reminded of the end goal and be encouraged to get there. So that we And, and we can gain a lot from that. Um, practical advice as well. The first half of chapter 4 could be summed up by three statements. Stand firm in the Lord is the first one in verse 1, followed by agree with the Lord and rejoice in the Lord. Stand firm in the Lord, agree with each other in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord. 
In verse 1, as we just read, Paul reminds them to stand firm in the Lord. Paul is in prison. The church is being persecuted. The church was only new and their founder was in prison. They might have worried about the future of their church without him. They might have worried who would be the next to be imprisoned or who was going to lead them now. The city of Philippi was Roman. They were under all sorts of pressure to conform and participate in worship to the pagan gods and to the emperor. In Roman culture, you made offerings to the gods to gain their favour. It wasn't an act of communicating with, with the gods, but rather a civic duty. Participation in pagan religious ceremonies and festivals was all about keeping society together and keeping civic harmony. And if you didn't participate in it, sorry, if you did participate in it, it meant that you were willing to keep that all together and demonstrate that you were doing your part to secure social and civic harmony, agricultural fertility and political stability. It was a demonstration of loyalty to social units, family, city, province, empire. Romans were quite open to the idea of adding new gods and religions, but only under the condition that participated in the community religion, um, because otherwise you were a threat to the stability of society. So Christians were under persecution and pressure to conform to this. The pressure wasn't always overt, maybe it was subtle. They might have missed out on hearing about a meeting. Maybe a supplier wouldn't supply them anymore. Maybe someone would go and shop elsewhere or get someone else to repair whatever needed repairing. Other times the persecution was obvious. And if things went wrong, like famine or war, the first people to get the blame were Christians because they refused to worship the Roman gods and maintain that social harmony. And it's in this light that Paul says to stand firm in the Lord. We too are under pressure to conform to society. We constantly pray, um, face pressure to conform our beliefs to what the world expects. The temptation is always there to say, well, everyone else does it or nobody else worries about it. But we need to stand firm in Christ and conform to him only. Romans 12 verse 2 says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. We are to be in the world, shining God's light and sharing his love in the gospel. But we are holy, set apart through Christ, and we do this by conforming to God, not the world. Being in the world, but not of the world, can be a balancing act. But we are to live in such a way that those outside the faith see our good deeds and our manner and know there is something different about us. And we do this by standing firm in him and the gospel, no matter what the world says or does or expects. Next in verse 2, Paul says to agree with each other in the Lord. We aren't sure what Euodia and Syntyche were disagreeing over, but Paul does the unusual thing of singling them out by name. Paul wants them to overcome their dispute with each other. The phrase in Greek that the NIV translates as agree with each other is nearly identical to the phrase Paul uses in chapter 2 verse 2 to be like-minded. This verbal echo along with naming them specifically implies they more than any others needed to put the interests of others first and in the Lord drop their quarrel. Nick mentioned carpet-coloured wars a few weeks ago as a hypothetical example of a disagreement that churches could have. 
if we are going to argue over the colour of the carpet and that absorbs us, then we as believers are not going to be focused on spreading the gospel. And that is all that matters. We need to share a mutual love and be united in the purpose of sharing the gospel and expanding God's kingdom. In chapter 3, we saw last week that Paul considers everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. We need to be unified in the Lord because everything apart from Christ is a loss. This doesn't mean uniformity. It means being unified in diversity. But we can't let our differences tear us up or tear us apart. I hope you'll forgive me if I have a mum moment, but the mum in me wants to be a bit blunt with Christians that disagree and say that, well, you're going to spend eternity with each other, so why not get along with them now? We need to be unified in the Lord. As Christians, we are equipped to overcome obstacles that would dishearten unbelievers. It is possible to worship and work alongside people who we have nothing in common with. Paul wants us to put this into practice and be united in the Lord. This is possible if we keep our eyes on the end goal and not what is behind us. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 2 to 6, Paul says, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, who is over all and through all and in all. The chapter goes on and in verse 25 onwards, it says to speak truthfully to each other, to only speak what is helpful in building others up, to be kind and compassionate and forgive each other. And in chapter 5 verse 21 it says... Um, to submit to one another out of reference of, for Christ. Unity is possible if we are humble, gentle, patient and bear with one another in love. Unity is possible if we are compassionate and forgive each other and submit to each other. And if we look to our end goal, which is eternity in heaven with Christ, then our differences here in this life will not be so big and we can be unified. So back over in Philippians chapter 4, the next verse, um, verse 6, starts by Paul saying, Rejoice in the Lord. Joy and rejoicing is a recurrent theme throughout the letter. In this letter, the words joy or rejoice appear 12 times. Of the 326 occurrences for the word for joy in the New Testament, 40% of those are found in Paul's letter, letters. Joy is an integral part of Paul's messages to the churches. He even tells the church in Thessalonica to be joyful always in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 16. Here in Philippians verse 4, Paul not only says rejoice in the Lord once, but he says it again, rejoice. It's an important enough thing for him to need to say it twice. There's a word in between the two rejoices though that's important not to miss and that is always rejoice in the Lord always if we have a success or an answered prayer it's easy to rejoice but this verse doesn't say to only do it when it is easy Paul is speaking to a church under trial and the persecution of the church would only get worse over the next couple of centuries 
Paul doesn't say rejoice without knowing hardship himself. If we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and if we look at verses 24 to 28. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Um, For those of you who don't know, in Deuteronomy 25, it was determined um, in the laws that were given at Mount Sinai that if you went before a judge and you committed a crime, that you would be given 40 lashes because any more than that would disgrace you in front of your fellow people. So the Jews went one step further and made it 39 lashes so that they didn't go that one step over. So this happened to Paul five times. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I have laboured and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. And then in chapter 12, verse 7, he says that there was, he had a thorn in his side and he called it a messenger of Satan. Now, personally, I've had my fair share of chronic illnesses um, and pain and some things I deal with on a daily basis, but I don't think any of them have ever been bad enough that I've called them a messenger of Satan. And that makes me wonder how bad must this thorn have been for him to call it that? Now, we don't know what that thorn was. It could have been literal, it could have been metaphorical, it could have been physical, it could have been emotional or spiritual. Some of the more popular theories of the thorn's interpretation include temptation, a chronic eye problem, malaria, migraines, epilepsy, speech disability. Some even say the thorn refers, refers to a person. But whatever it was, he was not without suffering. Yet in it all, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. We aren't promised physical restoration here in this life. Healings can and do happen and we should be constantly and faithfully praying for them. But any healing we do get is just a foreshadowing, just a taste of what heaven is going to be like when all will be made right. What we are offered now is spiritual restoration and for that reason we can rejoice. Some people are naturally more cheery than others. But joy in the Bible is not referring to a natural disposition. It's referring to a spiritual disposition. There's a song I used to sing at Sunday school that says, With Christ in my vessel, I can smile at the storm. When I was a kid, I had no idea what a vessel was. I couldn't understand why I needed Christ in my cup um, until someone explained that the vessel was actually a ship. So with Christ in my vessel, I can smile at the storm. And one of my favourite hymns has the line, Whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. If your soul is well, then no matter what life throws at you or what your personality is, you can rejoice in the Lord. If we aren't rejoicing, then think on what you have gained in Christ or what you could gain if you gave your life to him. We have undeservedly received forgiveness for our sins. We have been delivered from darkness. We have been regenerated and reborn through the Spirit. 
We have been adopted as God's own dearly loved children. We have been justified by our sins, being exchanged with Jesus Christ's righteousness. We have been sanctified as the Holy Spirit sets us apart as especially belonging to God and makes us more and more like Jesus. And we have been reconciled to the Most High God so that we can come into his presence in a close relationship with him and we await the reward of heaven and everlasting life. Those are the reasons to rejoice. Not because of what we are going through in this life, but often in spite of it. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. In verse 5, Paul has the admonition, let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. And that is followed by another in verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Verse 6 is another quotable quote. And when I've mentioned mental illness to people in the past, I've had people quote verse 6 at me and imply that if I had more faith, I wouldn't be anxious. People with anxiety disorders have little or no control over what takes place in their bodies. It's an illness like any other. But I think it's what you do with your anxiety that makes the difference. I think what Paul is telling us here is not a judgment on those who are anxious, but he's telling us to channel that anxiety into prayer and thanksgiving. As Christians, if in everything by prayer and petition and with thanksgiving we present our requests to God, then those everyday anxieties that we all have will be put in the context of everything being a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ. Jesus, when talking about worrying over the necessities of life, says in Matthew 6.33, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given as well. We need to channel our worry and our anxiety into seeking God and his kingdom. Our first priority needs to be seeking him. If you know anything about the various forms of therapy for mental illness that are around, one of the things they normally talk about is mindfulness. It's all about focusing on the present. It's a way of uncluttering your mind from everything that's going on with a hope of helping out with depression and anxiety. As Christians, though, we need to go one step further. We need not only to unclutter our minds and focus on the present, but we need to fill out that focus with God. And the way to do that is in verses 8 to 9 of Philippians 4. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice. The world tells you to be mindful and meditative. You should empty your mind. As Christians, we need to fill our minds with Christ. God tells us to be mindful of him, to focus on, to live as Christ, have the attitude of Christ. Everything else is lost compared to Christ. If we are to adopt what we have learned over the last few weeks then we need to practice what it says here because these are the things that will help us. The litmus test for seeing if we have Jesus' attitude 
and what we fill our minds with is to look at what comes out of us through our mouth and our actions. Jesus says in Matthew 12 verse 34, For out of the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks. If we fill our minds, hearts and lives with Christ, then the overflow of that will be Christ. If we fill ourselves with garbage, garbage will come out. What we fill our hearts and our thoughts with, that's what we will produce in life. We need to fill ourselves with whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And the first half of verse 9 says, Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice. I don't think that means necessarily that we have to only listen to Christian music and watch Christian movies and read Christian books. But it does mean to be discerning about what we fill our lives with and we gain discernment by knowing the gospel more and more. It matters what we absorb. I've heard a couple of people use this quote which says, sow a thought and you reap an action. Sow an act and you reap a habit. Sow a habit and you reap a character. Sow a character and you reap a destiny. It matters what we fill our hearts and thoughts with. Paul says in verse 8 to think on these things that are listed here and in verse 9 put them into practice. The result of not being anxious and praying and filling our minds with Christ can be found in verses 7 and the second half of verse 9. Verse 7 says, and the, pre- and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And the second half of verse 9 is, and the God of peace will be with you. We gain peace. In one commentary I read it, It says, in the peace that passes all understanding which such prayers will produce, believers will experience God's presence immediately, making the time of Christ's appearing irrelevant to their spiritual well-being. There is true peace. It is found in knowing that I experience God's presence immediately and that my spiritual well-being is so assured that I can patiently wait for Christ to come again. If we read further down to the second half of verse 11 um, to 12, it says, Whatever the circumstances, I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learnt the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Paul is content. He has joy. He has peace. And we need to remember that this letter is written while he is in prison. None of that is contingent on having all his ducks in a row. He doesn't need to have a wife, a house, a couple of cars, a degree, a good job, an overseas holiday once a year and 1.8 children. Paul knows what it is like to be in need and what it is like to have plenty. And through all of it has known contentment. He is content because he pursues Christ and not the things of this world. And verse 13 is the last quotable quote that we'll look at. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. This verse isn't a Christian's blank check. That is, if you're old enough to remember what a check is. We mentioned checks to our children recently and they had absolutely no clue what it was. Now, I'm fascinated that a piece of paper could be handed around and somehow end up taking money out of your bank account. They had no clue at all. 
But this verse, is, this verse isn't saying that this is our superpower or our super suit. We don't put this on and conquer all. We may not conquer all. We may not leap tall buildings with a single bound. We may not save the world, conquer our enemies or achieve everything we desire. Paul is saying within the context of the rest of the letter that he is content no matter what his economic circumstances are and he has Christ's power to enjoy life no matter what comes his way. He can accomplish everything that God calls him to do through the strength Christ gives him. We aren't promised an easy road as Christians and we may face tasks that daunt us, but we do not go it alone. No matter what task God has placed before you, he will give you the strength to accomplish it and you can find contentment in it. If we put this into the context of the whole chapter then, we need to stand firm, agree with each other in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord always, not be anxious but pray, fill our lives with Christ and when those tasks come along, Christ will be right there with us, giving us the strength to carry on. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. And just as they finish, if Ali and James would like to come up, Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 13, about straining ahead. But in 2 Timothy, he says he's run a race. Both might be true at some point in our lives. Sometimes we just run. Other times we are straining and pressing and plodding on. But if we focus on that end prize... If we espouse the quotes of Philippians, if we write them on our hearts or elsewhere, if we live as Christ is everything and everything else is a loss, if we adopt the attitude of Christ, then we can walk through this world rejoicing in the Lord always and have peace. So let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for your word. Thank you that we have ready access to it in multiple versions in our own language. We thank you for this letter to the Philippians that has been faithfully kept and translated down through the last 2,000 years so that we can read it here and now. We thank you for the messages that have been brought to us through it. Lord, help us to live, live it ourselves. Help us to be able to say, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Help us to have your attitude in everything. Help us to consider that anything we gain in this life is a loss compared to your greatness. Help us to stand firm in you, be unified in you and rejoice in you always. Help us to fill our minds with you so that we can know peace that passes understanding. Help us be able to say that we can do anything with your strength. Lord, when times are at their easiest, hardest, somewhere in between, you are with us, you strengthen us and comfort us. Thank you, Lord. Amen.